On this episode, I sit down with Ran Haight, an architect and legendary artist out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and we discuss a number of different things in the architectural and creative world from the creative process, dealing with criticism, and the value of a pencil and paper. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of the Pursuit of Purpose. My name is Chris Kiefer. I'm the host. And today we have an artist, architect, and just a general, very creative person, Ran Haight from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, joining us. Ran, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the invite. For everyone listening, Rand's name is R-A-N-N-H-A-I-G-H-T. His website is ranhate.com. But Rand, why don't you uh, just give us an overview of what you do? Well, <clears throat> I was licensed in uh, 1983 to uh, do architecture by the state of California. And then later, the state of Idaho issued a license, which... Uh, basically says I can legally call myself an architect. Uh, but since about 1975 or 76, I've been designing and, and building and uh, done a lot of uh, big projects. And I've done a lot of little projects. So uh, I operate a single uh, man office and uh, uh, my business goal is not to ever hire I've learned that uh, when you get into a larger office and you hire people to work for you, uh, you don't get to do what you wanted to do originally. You end up uh, worrying about finding work and paying insurance. So staying as a single-person office, I've been able to uh, do the projects hands-on. If you call me up, I'm the one that shows up and I'm the one that cuts the ribbon at the end of the construction. I do everything in-house with pencil, paper, and uh, the old ways. And uh, I enjoy the process much more for having done that. Recently, my wife's retired and uh, she's joined uh, the secretarial side is probably the least politically correct way to describe it, but she basically makes sure that the bills are paid and invoices go out, those kinds of things. And so you, um, you've been doing this or full-time since 1976, you said? Your license is 1973? 83. I was licensed, but I worked for other architects up until about 1991. Okay. So you did. You were um, doing architecture since then, but you you started in '91 doing your own thing, right? And I worked on my own as an employee of an of a client, um, starting about 1986. So there's there's different um, legal structures, but uh, for the most part, you know, I've been designing uh, all the way through since the mid '70s. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So that was actually going to be one of my questions is have you mentioned you don't want to have employees, but I was going to ask, did you ever or have a desire um, to work for someone, but you did work for 
other people for many years and then after kind of seeing both sides and options you you went the route of working for yourself well yeah the way architecture works is um, you very rarely set up on your own when you get out of school or uh, once you pass the test uh, to become licensed you uh, need to have that apprenticeship with uh, an architect that's um, going to allow you to see the business side, the, the project development, uh, the client relationships, all of those aspects. You just can't learn in school. You have to learn them uh, through practice. And then um, once you feel confident that uh, you understand you know, you may not be very good at it, but at least you understand the responsibilities and the uh, the fallbacks. Then you you just kind of say, well, it's time to do it. So uh, generally, that's after you've had about a dozen years worth of work under someone else's tutelage. Right. So, and one thing I have to know is just from looking at... I guess I should also um, say the way that I was introduced to you, Ran, um, and I, I don't, I'm sure you've done this for several couples before, but um, you are a longtime family friend and I guess business uh, associate of my now father-in-law, um, and you were one of the people that attended uh, our wedding or at the wedding. You actually um, hand drew a, you know, a portrait of the a sketch of the day which we now have um, framed in our bedroom. But um, that's how I got to, that's how I first heard of who this Ran Hate was. And um, everyone had just talked about how creative and amazing it was. And then when I actually got to see it, I was like, wow, this is crazy that you did this in, you know, a matter of 30 minutes or so while sitting there and, and watching. Um, but my question is, from the... From my perspective, what you are able to do drawing-wise is extremely rare. Is that, um, and maybe it's rare to the general public, but would you say that that's, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know how rare it is because uh, people are so intimidated by it. I don't know, you know, I probably talk to a dozen people a week who look at what I do and say, I can't draw a stick man. And, and those are their exact words. It's almost universal. And I kind of, I used to say, no, I think you can. But now I'm afraid that if I uh, uh, challenge them, then they'll want me to come over and teach them. And I just don't have the time to do that. But there's uh, what most people don't understand is that I don't have the power to draw, I have the power to observe. And if, I usually tell people if you can't draw, it's because you don't look hard enough. And they don't get it until I sit them down and, and put an object in front of them and I describe what to look for. And then once they pick that up, they go, well, you know, this is obvious. And I, I go, yeah, that's... You know, it's a dirty little secret. If I told everybody, they'd all want to do it, and then I'd be out of a, you know, out of a job. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but I do. That is a, uh, just knowing that knowledge, it's an interesting, very interesting way to think about um, drawing in particular. 
what we're I on the one thing that um, me being a millennial, I you know I'm a technology junkie. On your website, you actually I want to make sure I, I phrase this correctly because when I saw this, it was immediately something to me that I almost like I wanted to reject, and uh, because I you know I'm I'm definitely biased to the perspective of computer usage and the benefits of computers and whatnot. But on your um, website, you say computers are too limiting and enable architects to appear competent when they may not be. And then jumping down, you said, um, in short, if you can't draw it, it, you should not be building it. So what, or I guess my, my thought is, I get, or maybe the best way to just go about this is to explain that a little bit more or expand upon that, that short summary. Yeah, the, um, the point I'm trying to make is there's, there's a couple of different aspects. Number one, when you're working on a computer, you're not working with a tool that's a first-generation tool. It's not like a hammer or a chisel or, or a saw. What you're working with is software that someone else has created in the first generation. So you're getting the second generation. And you're basically being asked to um, click. It's a multiple choice scenario because of the way computer uh, programmers think. Um, you're given a series of choices. You know, what weight line, uh, do I want it to curve or go straight? So you're clicking through these as a multiple choice test. And at some point, you're going to reach a point where you, you just can't make the computer do what you want it to do because either you're not um, savvy enough with the software to make it, to manipulate it, or the software designer hasn't programmed that option into the list of questions. Mm -hmm. So um, I've, you know, I've had computer people uh, draft plans for me in the past, and I'll walk in with a sketch, and they'll go, "Well, you know, we really can't do that on the computer." And I said, <laughs> "Well, like, I can do it with a pencil. You know, I would think that, you know, a, a pointed stick and a piece of paper." Uh, would be uh, anything I could do there you could reproduce and and when you reach that level of complexity where uh, all I need to do is describe to whoever's building this what exactly he needs to do and the tool uh, that you're doing the description with can't reproduce the thought then that's telling me that's limiting Mm. You know, they've they've improved the software uh, a lot. But again, you're still working as a second generation person. You're you're not you're 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 always limited as to what the guy ahead of you who designed the software has thought of already. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And and then what ends up happening on the software side, I don't know if you've taken a look at the Adobe suite recently. But it looks like you almost, at least for me, I'm not a huge user of the Adobe software programs, but I, I know several people that are. 
but it ends up with you know a gazillion features and it seems like you almost need a phd just to navigate <laughs> the all the different settings and possible things that you could want to do exactly As, and it, what you're saying is when with you obviously being very good at drawing you can you know exactly what to do and how to draw something because it's it's always using the pencil and paper always and you can you do anything that you want within that um with such a basic tool right and the whole uh, object that you're trying to describe i've got it pictured in my head and a lot of times i'll when i'm talking to clients i'll just draw it upside down so they can see it while i'm drawing or, or speaking you know or modifying a drawing and it used to be they would um, look at me like this is magic but after a couple of meetings they just expect it you know and, and um, they're not uh, amazed by it they're so focused on what you're trying to accomplish that the feat of, of drawing the, the finished or the, the concept out that, that just that doesn't occur to them anymore and um, when you reach the point where they're focused on the, you know what are we the, the main purpose for the discussion is to describe what they want in terms of a structure mm. and they pass by all of the um, you know how we get their um, considerations and and that's a misconception that most people have about architecture they think it's all about the drawing and you know if you want to use a computer for architecture go ahead and do it but uh, to me it's like driving a car from the back seat. I'd rather just get out of the back seat and go up and get in the front seat and, and drive. Um, the, the computer is so complicated when it comes to describing three-dimensional objects that um, it's just not worth learning all of that. And the other thing is that, you know, they're gonna come out with a 2.0 version of what you just described and you've got to relearn it all again. There's, we're at a point where there's nothing that's standardized to the point where I, I feel like the investment in time is going to be worth, uh, I, I'll never get the time back in the learning side. It might take me two years to learn it, but it's only valid for a year. Mm. And, and I'll never save two years of my life uh, to, to in that year that it's valid. Yeah, I, I have a, I, I can appreciate what you're saying. I do think that um, uh, they're getting better, especially Adobe is getting better at making, trying to make it more intuitive, um, tr you know, eliminating the curve for um, relearning the newer versions and whatnot. But I definitely, um, I know, I know I get the sentiment of what you're saying, especially coming from the perspective of someone who, um, basically has learned and mastered to and again for anyone that has not gone and looked at your site i just think it's impressive i'm i'm sitting here watching this time lapse you have on the front page of uh you sketching a it's like an ice skating scene with some houses in the background but i just feel like what you're able to do is very impressive and i, I have to know have you tried or used the um ipad pro with the apple pencil i'm sure someone's put that in front of you uh, you know, I, I'll I'll try it once in a while if I'm sitting down into Staples and uh, nothing else to do, uh -huh. um, waiting for something to come out of the printer. 
And I, I just, again, you know, here I've got a machine that costs uh, six or seven hundred dollars, and and a stylus. Or a thousand. <laughs> yeah, where I can pick up a twelve dollar. In fact, I just ordered a, a gross of pencils that mm. uh, cost me seventeen dollars, and uh, I've got a, I I really splurged and I bought an electric pencil sharpener that cost about thirty two dollars, and that's everything I need. And I wow. The other nice thing about it is. The minute I'm done with a sketch or a drawing, it goes into a paper folder, and uh, I don't have to worry about anything crashing or uh, or putting together layers. I know right where it is, and uh, as long as you know the, we don't get a hole in the roof or a fire, um, it, it's going to be there. And where I find a lot of the the, the frustration with computers is the filing system. Once it goes in, and if you haven't filed it in a way that you can retrieve it in 10 or 15 years, uh, you'll never see it again. It just, just, it just, it's in there, but it's in a, a magic box someplace that you can't open up and, and thumb through it. Right. Do you feel like what you are able to do, um, I mean, and I guess this, as I'm about to ask this question, I'm already having second thoughts on it um do you feel like what what you are able to do is something that you were born with um yeah i to some degree but um it was something that i worked on purposely and when i say that i i was in junior college i was in an architectural program uh, for two years and i was going to transfer over to a state college afterwards and I ended up um, going to Cal Arts which was the school that Walt Disney started in Southern California to train people uh, to replace the um, first generation of artists that were retiring from that organization and I was in a humanities class and I would be taking notes on a yellow pad and I was looking at the professor and uh, I I would be distracted. Why is he wearing that dumb tie today as he was lecturing? And then I found that if I, on my notepad, if I would doodle and keep my mind on the doodle, my visual on the doodle in the margins, I would listen so much better and uh, I wouldn't have to study. When I would go back uh, for the test, at the end of the quarter, I would remember better for having doodled during the note taking than mm. if I had appeared to be paying attention. So that struck me as a as there's something going on in my head that I need to have uh, two things going on at once for one thing to be successful. And to this day, if I've got a big set of plans I need to get out, I'll go get a book on tape or a book on disc now, and uh, listen to the book while I'm drawing. And uh, I'm so much more productive doing that. Wow, that's, that I, I definitely have heard, it's, or it sounds like uh, just the things that I've heard with um, using, you know, like when, you, um, when you're writing and listening to, um, and I'm saying for myself, I'm not a, a doodler, but um, 
I I feel like that's right in line with things I've heard about learning with trying to engage more parts of your brain at the same time to, you know, participate in something that you're trying to absorb in your mind, right? Yeah, if I was on a jury, I would be doing the sketches that you'd see the reporters doing so I could remember what the testimony was. I would not watch the participants. I'd be drawing the whole time. And of course, wow. it drives other people nuts. They're saying, you're not paying attention. And I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm really paying better attention. But the other part of the story was when I got to CalArts, just by sheer luck, my roommate at school there, um, we had four or five people that were in my end of the dorm. And one of them was Glenn Keane. And Glenn um, is the animator that uh, he ended up at Disney Studios uh, as a director of animation. He did all the movies in the 80s, the, all of the um, Little Mermaid, the Aladdin, um, Beauty and the Beast. And Glenn was equally as good with a pencil, as, or better with a pencil than I was. But for some reason, we were two people in the same place with the same sort of passion for a lost art. And Glenn, of course, went on to generate these films for Disney in the 80s. And at the Academy Awards, he won an Academy Award for his short with uh, Kobe Bryant. And oh, yeah, the Deer Basketball one, right? right? So he, yeah, was, I saw he, that. he got, was able to stand up on stage and say, you know, this is what you can do with a pencil. And uh, at the same, well, just a little after we were there, John Lasseter had come through uh, CalArts and had looked at the computer and said, this is the, the tool of the future. And he started Pixar. And there's actually a Wall Street Journal front page story about Michael Eisner, who was running Disney at the time, uh, trying to referee the battle between uh, John Lasseter and, and my roommate Glenn as to how animation should be done at, at Disney Studios. So um, architecture was going through the same sort of uh, transition. And I was there uh, in the 80s when uh, the computer was being proposed as a way to replace drafting. And I looked at it and said, you know, I, I'll be John Henry. I'll be that guy that they'll find, you know, just slumped over his desk with a pencil in his hand. And the, and the computer's driving rails down that track faster than, than good old John Henry could. But uh, <laughs> that, that it's just a very conscious decision to do it that way. Right. That's, that's awesome to be. Um, I'm, I'm sure that a number of the people from CalArts went on to do very interesting things. And just the, the act of creating um, drawings and just the stuff that you guys are able to do, I think is just, um, it's so impressive to me. It's kind of, I feel like, especially when, I, um, when I've seen videos or seen the work that you're able to create, I feel like it's analogous to um, we just mentioned Kobe Bryant or LeBron or someone that's very good in sports um, that looks so effortless. And um, 
from the outsider's perspective, it seems like an unreachable skill or talent that you have. But I'm sure from your perspective, or I would assume, you look at it as you feeling like anybody could do this, theoretically, if you put in the time and the hours and the number of drawings that you've done, correct? Mm, no. I, no, I don't think anyone could do it, but I think a lot more people could do it than they give themselves credit for. Mm. And it's almost like singing, dancing. Uh, I consider actors, um, performers, any kind of live performance, and athletes, um, they're all of the same mold in that they have to do something very physical and it has to be done at exactly the right moment. And that's an unusual set of circumstances when it comes to architecture or even filmmaking that, that uh, Glenn does in that you may have a deadline, but you don't have to put that pencil line down at exactly the right time. And if, if uh, Kobe's going to go up to, for a layout or layup, he has to be able to uh, gauge everyone around him and time it so that no one is in the way when the ball is in the air. Whereas I, if, if I'm working on a drawing and uh, I'm just, it's not there, I'll, I'll literally shut everything down go down and you know make a cup of coffee or, or watch something stupid on television and then shut it all off and come back and now it's time for that line to go down. I'll, I'll understand at that point so much better. So as an artist of that uh, media um, you can choose the time and everyone else they have to do the exact right thing when that time in a very narrow envelope mm. and uh, musicians uh, I think are any of those talents is probably the difference you know it's the timing and not everybody has the same sense of timing as a musician so um, I think it's I'm probably um, half of what that is in other words, I, uh, writers would be the same way. They can write um, when it's time to write. They don't have to write at a certain point. Mm. Do you feel like, um, so you, what you just mentioned there was going into, or you're trying to work on something and sometimes it's just not there and you just you know leave forget about it and restart later mm -hmm. sounds like you're starting to touch on the creative process that you use have you or do you have a um like a set routine when someone comes to you and says hey i need a house or hey i need a cartoon or um a comic like do you have you developed uh very strict routines or processes to maintain a high level of creativity while still being efficient? Uh, yeah, you wouldn't know it as a client though, because um, my first goal is to get to know the client to the point of understanding um, how best to uh, communicate with them. Are they uh, 
real comfortable verbally? Are they a little shy? Do they hold back on their criticism? Are they uh, uh, too quick to make a decision? Those kinds of things, I sort of assess how they will be to work with. Then after that, I go through a, a pretty standard procedures of uh, trying to uh, collect what they need um, and formulate it into something like a problem. And then after that, I come back and solve that problem. And hopefully, um, I will give them exactly what they need, but it will be done so much better than they expected. In other words, you know, I, they may say I need to have this dishwasher to the right hand of the sink, but if I put the cabinet that the dishes go into uh, close enough that the process of doing dishes and putting them away is effortless, they're going to come back to me and say, I really appreciate how you took it beyond what I asked for. And then if I could do it in a way that looks really nice, then everybody is pleased. You know, it isn't pure function. It's, it, there has to be the artistic side of it uh, um, melded into it and sort of seamlessly. And it sounds like you're constantly, um, it's a constant battle of aesthetics and functionality. Yeah, and the aesthetics, they're second get the function right. And then I always talk to people about, uh, generally a client, when they're talking about architecture, will come in and say, they'll try to describe it as a style. And I'll back them off and say, no, let's talk about it as a language. And you're, you may think that the style you want is art deco. Well, let's say that's Italian. And, uh, you know, somebody who wants a little cottage, you know, Snow White cottage, that's German. Or uh, if you want something that's post uh, mid-century modern or something, well, that's, that's going to be French. So let's, let's get what, let's talk in terms of language instead of style. And then let me, since I'm hopefully uh, pretty good in all of these design languages, once we determine what language you want to be in, then I'll pull in whatever I need, but I'll continue to design in that language. And it, it seems to work. People get it a little bit. It's, it, style is, uh, it's almost a predetermined thing. And I don't have a problem, you know, just like languages do. There's a lot of uh, words in English that come from all different languages. And if you use them, you think, well, that's an English language. No, it's the word came from France or it came from Spain, but we've adopted it because it seemed to be the right word for this application. Hmm. So when you are saying languages, do you literally mean like you're, if I came to you, is this something that you're doing inside your head or are you trying to get me to say, I really like German looking houses? Um, Boy, no, it, it, it's part of the, the original or the initial uh, 
interview process is to determine that you know they like things that are of this language type like you know but I, you don't mean literal like no um, all you're saying using styles you you've thought of it in the in like speaking a language right it's 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 not if i if they say style i'll go okay i get it but let's let's say it's uh let's use the word language instead of style and um like I've I've done a house for a client, one of the best projects I've ever done, and after talking to the the wife, I could tell she was of a woody, um, um, more of a, a craftsman style, and he was uh, James Bond. Everything had to move and hide, and you know it was. Just think of you know we're we're speaking uh, James Bond's language, and the other one is we're we're you know talking uh, something that's more Midwest uh, turn of the century. Well, by by identifying those two aspects in a married couple, I got to come up with a house that they'll both accept. And appreciate and you start mixing those up and you you solve uh, art uh, arts and crafts kinds you make arts and crafts decisions the way James Bond would have done it you you come up with something that no one has ever seen before and you know people walk into a house that, like that and they'll go well what style is this and I'll look at them like I don't know it's Ran-esque and there's just there's no other way to describe it, but that's exactly what Frank Lloyd Wright did. He took um, Japanese farmhouses, and he was working on uh, high-rise build the first high-rise buildings with uh, Louis Sullivan, and he just started mixing it all up, and it came out to be something that no one had ever seen before. But it's actually all referenced back to things that. Uh, had been done uh, traditionally. So if I were to kind of um, to wrap up the topic of the creative process that you use, basically the way that I would summarize it is that the first thing that you do is you get to know the client very, very well to the point that you understand how they best communicate and then also maybe what their strengths and weaknesses are in communicating because you're you have to get to you have, really have to understand what they're trying to say or what they're not saying in order to satisfy them, right? That's step one. Yeah, and then I, I try to get to whatever they need. I, I boil it down to the problem. Right, and then step two would be outline the problem, and then step three is solve the problem. Right. Those are the, if we were to break it into three, is that a, a good summary of that? Yeah, and if, if you go to a client that's, uh, you know, they've, they've got... Uh, it, it, I always describe it as doctors have the worst job. Nobody goes to see the doctor when they're happy. They always have a problem. Something is hurts or it's wearing out or I, I, I feel fine, but I'm sick. Whereas my job, uh, people generally call me because they say, I just had a kid, I need an extra bedroom. And it sounds like a problem, but what they're really saying is, um, 
we're, we're living a really good life. We have the ability to afford something nicer. So we want you to help us uh, improve our lives. So the problem is how best to do it. How can I do it so they can afford it? How can I do it in a way that will last them through this phase of their life? And um, once you, they, they very rarely come to you and say, you know, I have to build a building because I, I have no other option. So, and it's, it's the wonderful side of what I do is I get to see people when they're at their, their most positive points of their, of their life. Hmm. That is very cool. And, and they always, they're coming to you hoping that you can provide a solution to their problem, but well, it's not the only And they don't know it's a problem. Option. They don't think of it as a problem. They just want, right. they want some help. So the only way I can help them is to form it into the problem, to boil it down to what is it you need exactly. Gotcha. So how important is um, criticism in the in the design process and how do you uh, facilitate that or how do you deal with it well the the number one thing i do is i by drawing as they speak i'm drawing and then um after we're done with the meeting i'll go back and refine the drawings but the, the criticism people can criticize most people can criticize much better than they can create so if I hand them something that is not even close or, or can be relatively close, they'll go through it and say, well, I don't like this and I don't like that. And, I, and that, that gets you to um, their ultimate goal much quicker than if you stew and fret and come back and try to make it exactly right the first time. Um, so it's critical that what they have in front of them, um, that they're, number one, they're comfortable enough to say that they don't like it. And I make a big point of that. I said, I'm gonna lead with my chin, go ahead and hit me as hard as you can with whatever you're thinking, because if you don't do that, I can't help you as, as well. Mm. And that takes a lot for people to get to the point, you know, they, there's times when they kind of nod and roll it all up and go away. and and I'll check with them later and say, it's okay. You can tell me what you don't like. Um, and once they get to that point, then we're off and running. So um, getting the, the honest feedback is a big deal. And then it might take one or two generations and you can get it to exactly right. But what I expect from my clients is that they put the effort in, that they they work, I make them work as hard as I'm working by um, expecting them to come back and, and analyze what I've done. There are clients that I've had that I wasn't successful with because I call them shoppers. They wanna go into the, the, you know, the clothes store and try every outfit on the rack and in every size and in every color and then they'll find the one that sort of looks right on them. And I'm more of a tailor. Uh, I'll, I'll walk in, I'll say, do you like this material? And are you looking, you know, what event are you going to with this clothing? And ask all the questions. And then as they're 
they real they don't realize it, but they're making these small decisions along the way, thousands of these little decisions. And then at the end, I say, here's what you look like. And I sculpt it and tailor it so that it makes them look as good as possible um, with the cloth that I was given to work with. And that that takes a lot of standing there, you know, while you're putting the pins in. Whereas, uh, you know, the shoppers just, they just want to go through the rack and, and keep moving. If they don't see anything they like, they give up. Hmm. That's, a, I, I've never, or I like that analogy of basically, um, it's almost like from the architectural side of buying a house, going through and looking at what's on the market is the equivalent of shopping. Whereas going to you is more of designing the perfect outfit for your lifestyle or family size or what, right? Is that more on track? Well, and not only that, but people that, you know, you continue in the analogy, people that are shoppers, they don't know whether they look, they look good or not. They rely on someone else saying, mm. oh, that's you, that's perfect. Whereas um, if it's tailored for them, they don't care what anybody else thinks. They just know that they, as far as they're concerned, they look good, they feel good, the clothes function, everything. They can move their arms, they can dance, they can do whatever they want. And, um, you know, whether the neighbor thinks it looks right or not, you know, that, that it doesn't occur to them as uh, a factor. Gotcha, okay. So you, as an architect, you have been an architect for a while, but you were probably drawing far, far before that. I'm interested how you think architecture um, has impacted your artwork and how artwork impacts your architecture. Yeah, the, you know, architecture is such a precise science that um, whenever I've taken art classes or, or gone on junkets with artists, they go, you know, you got to loosen up. So um, I always have a, something sitting around the studio here when I'm drawing that uh, it might be oil on canvas or, or um, you know, big fat chunk of charcoal or something that's, that's very loose. And uh, I have to purposely go over and, and sort of free things up. Um, if I work under the same, uh, on the same type of project for very long, I'll notice it just gets tighter and tighter and more precise and more precise. And it's kind of fun to be able to, to just get real loose every once in a while. And when you, when you're saying that to, as a non-artist or non-professional artist myself, I do feel like I'm creative in certain things. You're saying that when you're trying to create something, you go through a period of kind of almost throwing stuff on paper, very quickly sketching it out. But as you work on it longer, you start like pulling out the ruler and straightening things up and you're more constrained. Is that, a, is that a, what I'm hearing? Well, just the nature of architecture, the, as the project become, comes to completion, uh, all the math has to close the... Uh, Products have to be um, identified. The parts have to fit. So you, there are some architects, you know, there's like Frank Gehry, 
when I look at what he does, he's got an office with 40 or 50 people in it. And he'll walk in with the least uh, comprehensible scribble and drop it on the desk. And because of his status in the world of architecture, these 60 people just scramble and turn it into a building. And uh, I don't have that luxury. I have to do everything. I have to be the, the upfront, big picture, flash, you know, the, all about the, the, the showmanship. But at the end, it all has to come down to hand it to the contractor. And he goes out and starts uh, setting up concrete forms. And that's a pretty wide range of skills. Wow, that is crazy to think about. The um, do you actually take it down? Do you work with? I'm assuming you have to work with structural engineers as well, right? But they're just more saying whether it's capable of being done or not. Yeah. Well, what you do is you 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 have enough experience um, to size approximately. You know, pretty much it's going to take a beam that's this deep or this wide, and then. Um, I set it all up, send it to the structural, and they come back and say um, that beam is exactly this many pounds per foot or whatever it takes to describe the beam. But it's usually, uh, there's no surprises. Uh, the big thing I rely on is uh, with the structural engineers is for uh, what's called lateral bracing, which is um, uh, wind and earthquake both affect buildings uh, from a side-to-side -side motion, whereas uh, gravity works. Everybody thinks of a building as more or less gravity, that you have to have the weight of the building supported by footings and beams and, and walls. But uh, when that building is complete over its lifetime, it'll be exposed to some pretty violent horizontal things like, you know, a big windstorm or a, 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 an earthquake will shake it like a bowl of jello. So the structural engineers are able to come back uh, after I've done the initial and say, you need to stiffen this wall a little more or we need to have more um, um, connectors or uh, gotcha. let's, let's drag this to another location so when it starts shaking, it doesn't fall down. Right, right. So you're, and just front back to the question on the architecture and, and drawing, I would guess that you think, um, or I guess I should say, I have to assume that an architect that is also not an artist would definitely be limited in what they're able to create just because they're not exercising that creative side, right? Yeah, there's lots of different types of architects. They're uh, just like uh, lawyers or doctors, you know, they're specialists and um, not all architects do everything. There are, uh, uh, if, if you had a really logical mind and you were very good at organizing, um, say, uh, masonry and, and wood and um, these various materials, how they interact, you might be good at detailing. So your job would be to take um, a sketch and then get all the parts to where when they're complete, you know, the joints all line up and things are, are very uh, easily built. Uh, 
Well, that, that architect wouldn't necessarily be the guy that meets with the clients and decides, you know, how many rooms they want. So, um, and then there's, there's, uh, architects that do more administrative things or, uh, uh, for government projects where their job is more to uh, take uh, a project that really needs to be built for the public safety or public good, but doesn't need a lot of, of flash and dash to it. Mm. So. I see. So one of the things that I'm, I know that you have um, said it a couple times is the um, this idea of tattoo architecture. Mm-hmm. Can you define that for me? That that's that is a term that you came up with, right? Yeah. Um, the reason I say something is uh, tattoo architecture is that in ten or fifteen years, you'll regret that you did it. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm of the opinion that most people that get tattoos at some point in their life they go, "What the heck was I thinking?" Uh, because in your life. As you know, you may think that uh, it's it's cool, but uh, you you change, and uh, there'll come a time when you don't think it's cool. Architecture mm. is as long lived as a human, in fact, longer. And if you put up a building that's trendy and uh, is something that uh, hasn't been studied to the point where it's balanced or has uh, some originality to it, at some point you'll look back and you go, you know, I can't believe I put this thing up because it, it, it's going to be around. You'll see it again. So, so uh, how do you balance though, or I, I guess I mean, maybe this is a naive question, but how do you balance wanting something to, one of the reasons that someone could potentially be redoing a building or making a house is because they were taking down something that was outdated, let's say. Mm -hmm. How do you balance trying to modernize or make something look new, um, and not only in the material, but just the, the style or the language that you're creating, but not you know ride the fence of like, we want this to last, knowing that most buildings don't last forever, but we're, you know, we want to blend in with the surroundings, but also have it be something that's kind of appealing or cool. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of projects like that lately, and it's been, um, the way I've approached it is uh, there are some buildings uh, and styles, and I'll use styles in this term, where um, they've gone through that cycle. They've, they've lasted 40 or 50 years, which means that they're, whatever style they were initially has gone out of style, but now it's coming back. And uh -huh. what I'll do is I'll, the um, last project I did was a building that was put up in the 70s. It was a hotel and the uh, franchise wanted to uh, bring it up to the standards of their uh, franchise model. And I said, you know, this thing was out of style for a long time. It's now very trendy. What I would like, what I would propose is to finish the building the way it would have been in 1971 um, if in 1971 they had the budget that this building deserved. 
And that again goes back to the language. If I know how to speak architecture 1971, uh, so then I would go back and um, just put all the things that got cut out of the budget when it was built originally, put them back in. And to and I've done that with Art Deco and some of these other buildings. And it, I, I love doing it because you have to learn the language. You have to know the language. And then you say, if I was in 1971, what would I have done if I had an unlimited budget? And it, it's, it's just, one of the things I'm trying to do is, is not uh, take apart something that should be preserved. And Art Deco uh, was like that in the, 50s everybody wanted to get rid of it and there were little pockets like down in Florida where it they were depressed to the point where nobody cared well in the 80s <laughs> the people realized what great design they were and they started to revive it so it had gone through that cycle it was out and now it's back in so then and they're probably in the the low end of the cycle again and they'll have to come back again but at least there's enough examples preserved that uh, the architecture can be uh, augmented and, and brought up to, you can imagine what it was like in the 1930s or 20s down in Florida, walking around inside of an Art Deco building. And you can, you can uh, at least respect that style and preserve it a little bit. The, the problem that I have with uh, tattoo architecture is that a lot of it now is being done with the justification of sustainability. They'll take a perfectly good working building and knock it down and put up a building that is going to be as short-lived stylistically as the building that was there before. And, um, you know, when you go to Europe and you see a building, um, especially, you know, these little houses, they're five or six hundred years old. You can't get more sustainable than something that lasts <laughs> that long. And there's no way to justify knocking down a perfectly good building and putting up another building. The energy taken to generate the material and, and uh, the demolition, the, the, the uh, reconstruction, the energy used, you'll never, in the lifetime of a 20 year span, you'll never get that energy back again. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, maybe those those scenarios are best for, you know, brand new builds. Um, but yeah, I, that is something that you don't it's sort of, I've heard things like that regarding uh, solar panels or, you know, uh, electric cars. And the, you think about how much gas you're saving when you're using it, but you don't think about the energy that went into creating the batteries that are being used to store the energy. And the other thing people don't realize is that the electricity that charges the car is coming from a dam that's 1,500 miles away. And you pour a gallon of electricity into the, to the electrical line at the dam and a half a gallon comes out the other end. Mm. So 50% um, of the energy generated by the facility is just lost in transmission. Well, it's not only lost, but it's it's turned into heat through resistance. So you've got all the electric cars running around the city feeling good about themselves, but in order to power them, you've got this gigantic electric blanket over the entire surface of the earth that's blowing heat 
off of these electrical lines mm. and they never account for that in the life studies or the energy studies of these things. So um, my point is if you're going to be an architect and you want to be responsible, put up buildings that will uh, last long enough, that will be appreciated long enough and function long enough that they'll at least live as long as the material you put into them. You know, they might rot away in 150 years, but they'll have 150 years of life within that time span of usable life. Right. So another question I have on topic of inspiration, where do you, um, what do you turn to or where do you go to be inspired when you're working on a project? There's, you know, I've, I've studied it for so long that uh, as people come in and say, this is what I'm looking for, I'll generally um, say, I've seen a building like that before, or I've seen that language before, and I'll start suggesting it as it's coming through. Um, and some of it I do without ex explaining what I've done. I'll say, what do you think of this? And their answer will either be positive or negative, but it, it's again, it's that 20 questions. I'll, I'll say, do you like this? And they'll, they'll say, no. And okay, let's put that away. And then I'll come up with something else that is in my little uh, memory of, of buildings. And a lot of it has to do with form and uh, proportion. And it reacts to other buildings that are around it, if it's in a neighborhood or in a, a cityscape. And so do you, like, I'm just thinking of um, stories I've heard of creative people. Are you a fan of going on walks or um, basically when you're out and about in everyday life, do you, are you constantly um, or even subconsciously just observing and appreciating and kind of I don't know, storing away mental images of things that you think are cool for later use? I, I probably do that more than even I realize. Mm. Um, you know, I'm constantly uh, critiquing things that I've seen. And if something is great, boy, I, I remember it. Or the other thing, when I travel, I always carry a sketchbook. And it, it's the greatest tool ever. And I tell people, when you travel, put the camera away, take a sketchbook, even if you can't draw. When I, I was in Paris, and the Parisians were nice to me because I had a pencil and a, and a sketchbook. And if I had <laughs> been carrying a camera, they wouldn't have talked to me. But um, that tells you the, the power of what drawing can do. But if you sit, if you find something you really like, and you sit there for 45 minutes sketching it, you will remember it, you will um, dissect it, you'll, you'll work out the proportions, you'll remember the details so much better than if you just click a camera and then you walk off and say, I'll look at it when I get home. Mm. And I, I say that, and you don't have to do it from an analytical standpoint, just the fact that as a traveler, you're sitting for someplace for 45 minutes that you've never been, you're five, 6,000 miles from home, people will come over and they'll interact with you. They'll, they'll never tell you to leave because uh, they appreciate what you're trying to do. 
And it also is such a complement to the people's um, environment. If I come into a little village and I sit down and start drawing, you know, I, it might be the hand pump on a well. Um, the neighbors will, first of all, they, they're curious. They want to know what you're doing. But the fact you thought that was special enough to spend that time is a huge compliment to them. They go, don't you have things like this where you live? And I go, no, this is really something special. And the conversation started. Man, I get invited into places that you wouldn't believe. They just, they just love it. <laughs> and it's probably just pointing out something that may, you may or may not think of. It has a little bit to do probably with the fact that you're not only doing that, but you're also good at it. To some degree. But even if you're bad at it, <laughs> most people would go, you know, that guy's got enough guts to sit there and draw that stick figure. <laughs> I, I'm going to have him come in and have a glass of wine on me. That's it, awesome. It's it's really it. it uh, you know what it is. I think is most people don't draw because they they're afraid. They're they they don't want to be criticized. They they feel vulnerable. And if you're willing to sit there and open up yourself and say, "This is as good as I can do," that's about as offering as you can get. As far mm. as um, I'm, I'm telling you how vulnerable I am. And if you like it or not, they still, very few people will go, you can't draw and right. will walk off and discount you. They'll always right. give you credit for trying. That's a very good point. So the, um, something I ask everybody, what does success look like to you, um, in, you know, for the, the rest of your career? What are you trying to accomplish at this point? You know, right now we've just had a, uh, my wife and I are about are the same age. We, our parents were the same age. Um, we've lost three of the four of our parents. And they were all uh, incredibly successful at leaving us without a burden. That uh, my, my idea of success is just to, to, to not have any kind of financial or ecological or, or any kind of footprint that when I'm done, you know, I'm, I can at least say, you know, I, I used every dollar, but it's, uh, you don't owe anything on my, my point. Mm. And then on top of that, you know, I would hope that the buildings that I've done, at least one or two of them would be appreciated to the point where people would say, don't knock it down. That's a Rand Hay building. Mm. And so I think that's a, um, the, from the perspective of um, fulfillment and purpose in life, what would you say your purpose is? Boy, I don't know. Uh, so far, uh, professionally, I've, I've had some pretty good opportunities, but I think personally, uh, the kids and grandkids that we've, we've created, procreated, have been, uh, you know, I think they're a, a positive thing on the world. Hmm. That's awesome. So three book recommendations. I don't know if you read often, but do you have any book recommendations for myself and the people listening? Well, as an architect, I'm mandated by uh, uh, professional um, operations here to say The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, of course. I read that book uh, about every 10 years, and uh, it's amazing 
to anyone who doesn't know the book, it's, it's about an architect in the 30s and, uh, in New York and the structure, social structure that he runs into. And it's a little radical in terms of uh, how he deals with it, but it's a good book. Um, the second book I really liked was Being There, which was made into a movie. Um, uh, Jersey Kosinski, I think, wrote it. And then the last one, which I, you know, I couldn't believe, I couldn't come up with a third book, but it was Forrest Gump. And uh, when I saw the movie, I said, I got to read this book. And I went back and read the book. And it's pretty true to the to the film, but the way the uh, author takes it, it, it wanders off at the end to, into something that's pretty bizarre. But I felt it was more like a documentary when I saw it, because that's the way my life has been. Just out of dumb luck, I have been around more things that uh, are, are world-changing, history-changing than uh, any person I've ever run into. And I, I, it's not that I've had effect on them. It's just that I seem to be at a place where something, if I told you all the places I've been, you'd go, nah, that sounds like Forrest Gump. And <laughs> so Forrest Gump, the book by Winston Groom. Right. Okay. And then the last uh, off-topic question um, what is your favorite movie of all time? My favorite movie is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which uh, is the 1938 version with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. And uh, the reason I think that's the greatest movie is because of Howard Hill. And Howard Hill was the archer that did all of the shots uh, all of the uh, special effects at the day, they were, everything was done for real. And uh, to see this guy dressed up like uh, Errol Flynn shooting real arrows at Basil Rathbone with a camera behind, it's, they just can't get any better than that. that was, he was so good at what he did and all the effects of that movie with arrows flying around and... and uh, he did it for real. And uh, my opinion is that uh, uh, they should pass a law that any movie made with weapons, guns, that you should use live ammunition. If someone's going to get <laughs> shot, you have to really shoot them. There's, there's no special effects. And right. I would think that uh, people's attitudes towards uh, weapons would change dramatically, quickly. That's awesome. I've never, the, I'm a huge fan of real effects, but I have never seen that movie. I also am, I don't know if you pay attention to ratings that much. I'm obsessed with uh, IMDb and looking at the rating that users have given the movie. Mm -hmm. And I have this weird obsession with, I only watch movies that are over a 7.3 out of 10. <laughs> uh, and The Adventures of Robin Hood, do you want to guess what? All 41,000 users have given that movie. I'd give it an 8. It is an 8.0 out of 10. That's amazing. Good guess. Yeah. Well, if, <laughs> if, if, well, I shoot longbows. I build longbows. I build my own arrows. I've done that since I was a kid. 
and there was uh, Howard Hill and what he was able to do. And he did all the movies. If there's an arrow shot in a movie, Howard Hill did it. But when it, they said at the critical point of the archery tournament, and I'm not spoiling anything for you here, but um, uh, the bad guys are shooting arrows at a target. And uh, Robin Hood in, in the book and in the legend, uh, it's the perfect uh, arrow and it's right splits in the center the arrow. of the hole. And he shoots and splits the arrow. So they, they t went to Howard Hill and they said, okay, for this scene, we need to split this arrow. How do we do it? He goes, I'll shoot it in half. And they said, no, really, how do you do it? And he goes, no, watch. And he, he shot one arrow into the target using the bad guy's arrow. And then he picked up his, his other arrow that he had developed that uh, he knew the spin on it and everything. And he shot it and just split it right in half. And they rolled the wow. camera. And, and he had another one where he had to cut a rope. And he developed a um, broadhead that had a V cut. Instead of a pointy arrow, it had a V. And he knew how many paces it took for the arrow to twist so that the V would come up horizontal. They, wow. And they said, turn the camera on. And he pulled the, uh, the bow back. and The arrow went through, cut the rope. That's amazing. But he was doing stuff like that all the time. And uh, it was with live actors. They were actually uh, stuntmen that would uh, battle to be the guy on horseback that Howard Hill would shoot with an arrow. And <laughs> the only thing between them and death was a 12 by 12 pine board. And they'd come riding up into the scene with this thing under their shirt and he'd shoot them right in the chest. And uh, the board would stop the arrow and the director would say, that was a good one, you know, let's go on to the next scene. <laughs> For some reason, I feel like nowadays the insurance companies wouldn't allow that. <laughs> yeah, that was Hollywood back then. That's so cool. Um, awesome. Well, um, if someone wants to get in touch with you, how do you recommend they do that? Uh, they can uh, send me an email or phone calls always work at the 208-664-4693 number. Awesome. I will include that in the show notes if someone wants to reach out. And what's your email? It's ranhate at gmail.com. It's amazing. You just have the perfect setup because uh, your name is so unique. You've got ranhate.com, ranhate at gmail.com. Yeah, there's Everything not a lot of this. Very simple. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Rand, for joining us. And um, yeah, I I'm, I'm really appreciate your time. And again, for anyone that has not um, heard of you and the stuff that you've done, you've got a nice portfolio on your website of the work that you've completed. Are you still taking on projects for people that want houses? Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, you plan on doing that for many more years? Yeah, I've to to reach that success that I've talked about. I only have about thirty or forty years left to earn enough money to leave without any uh, burden. So, yeah. There I'll, you go. I got a few more uh, buildings left in me. That's awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rand. Great. I appreciate you calling. Thank you, everyone, for your attention and listening to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Your feedback and comments mean the world to me. If you liked what you heard, 
take a second and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. If you've got suggestions for future episodes or want to say hi, you can shoot me an email at chris at chriskiefer.net. And don't forget, I make it a point to include all of the links to the books, movies, and resources that were mentioned in this episode in the show notes. You can find those notes directly in the episode description or on my website at chriskiefer.net. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.